Okay, great. It's not very bright up here. If I, if I get lost in my notes, it's because I can't see them. <laughs> Do you have Bibles? Yeah. Have you turned to this passage in 1 John? Or have you helped a child to turn to it if, if they don't know how to find it? Or do you sit next to someone who has a Bible so that you can see? It's lovely to be here with you. I haven't been in Kansas City for four years or, or more, and so it's really good to be back. I do a lot of traveling, and as Gabe said, my home is in what's actually called Basel. <laughs> yes. Um, but if you travel as much as I do, you, you find that home is Jesus or nothing. This passage that we're going to look at is a very rich and deep passage. And we're going to dive in in some places and skim over a little bit in other places. And I pray that it will be a blessing to you. Because of my own background and studies and work and because of my connection with the Culture House, which is very interested in art and creativity and, and beauty, I am interested in beauty. And it's very interesting to me that this letter of John is structured. You know, the Bible has structure. It's not just um, a hootenanny of verbiage that flows out from someone. It actually has a variety of structures and the different sections of it. And this letter is structured like a musical composition, very much like a symphony. It has three melodies, three themes that are stated and then recapitulated and then developed and then brought together in different combinations and then there is a, a finale at the end. So it's a very artistic construction. And it, it points out to me that God's word is not only true in the factual, historical sense, it's beautiful. And that our lives should not be only true and accurate and legalistically correct, but they should be beautiful beautiful in our relationships with each other, beautiful in our lifestyles, beautiful in our connections with the reality around us that we live and work with. There should be beauty, creativity, loveliness. This is a part of who God is, and this is a part of who we, in his image, should also be. The three melodies of this symphony are three tests of fellowship. And he, he begins in the beginning of the letter by saying uh, about Jesus. It's all about Jesus. And he says, that which we have seen, that which we have touched, that which we have beheld, that which we have held, that which we have heard, this we proclaim to you. And he's talking about Jesus. And we write this so that you might have fellowship and we expect, because we're very religious and good people, that he's going to say fellowship with God. But he doesn't. He says, we write this that you might have fellowship with us. And our fellowship is with God. So there is a primacy of the relationship. And we see this even more strongly 
in the opening of the Gospel of John, which was written by the same man who wrote this letter, the opening is very famous. You probably can recite it for me. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was what? With God. Now, we expect it to jump to the Word was God, but it says the Word was with God, and then what's next? The Word was God. Now, what does this show us? It's, it's little phrases, but in the beginning of a book, the foundation is made for the whole rest of the book. And the foundation of the Gospel of John is the fact that relationships precede identity. My identity, this is a very politically incorrect thing to say. This, I could be stoned in the streets of Kansas City for saying such a thing. In a postmodern culture, I am absolutely an outsider. My identity, if the Bible is true, which is a big question, of course, my identity, if the Bible is true, is not in myself. My identity is in my relationships. If you think of the creation, God created the land and the sea and the sky and the fish and the animals and the plants, and everything was good. And then he created Adam, and he said, it is not good. Oh, dear. What's the problem with Adam? It is not good that the man should be alone. What's wrong with that? I like being alone. What's the, what's the big problem with being alone? It is not good that the man should be alone because God is not alone. There are three persons. There is a with, as John tells us in the beginning of his gospel. But for Adam, there's no with. There's only me, my, I. God has said, let us make man in our image. So God is us and our, but Adam is me and mine, and the image is not there. It's not good. The identity of Adam requires Eve. He is not self-sufficient. Now, see, that's the political bomb that goes off, because in a postmodern world, we are self-sufficient. I identify myself if the Bible is true, we do not identify ourselves. We are identified by God, and we are identified by our relationships with other people. So then John says, I write this letter. He actually says, we write this letter so that you might have fellowship with us, and our fellowship is with God. I'll give you a little proverb I made up. It's not in the Bible, but I'm convinced it's true. It's, it's this. God alone is God, and God is not alone. Now, that is only true about the God of the Bible. Now, I'm going to say a couple of more really shocking things. So fasten your seatbelts. It is only true of the God of the Bible. It is not true of Buddha. Buddha alone is Buddha. Silence. It is not true of Allah. I'm very sorry. That's, that's 
really violent thing to say, but I, I'm required by honesty to say that. It is not true of Allah. Allah alone is Allah. Silence. Krishna alone is Krishna. Silence. Brahman alone is Brahman. Silence. God alone is God, and God is not alone. He is God. And there is no other. He is the basis of our being and our identity. There is no other. There is no other hope except this God that the Bible describes. And it's logically evident. The others don't work. So John begins in this section, uh, which is a development of the second and third tests. These three tests of fellowship are the doctrinal test. Do you know that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh? Which is a very strong anti-Platonic statement. Do you know that the supernatural has become natural? The uncreated has become created without becoming unspiritual. Do you know that or not? And if you don't know that, you are not from God. And any spirit, any book, any teacher, any idea, any song that does not know that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is not from God. Beware. Be discerning. So that's the doctrinal test. And the moral test is, do you obey God's word? And the social test is, do you love each other? These are the three tests of fellowship, the three tests of being a Christian, living in the kingdom of God. And then he develops and mix and matches these tests all through the letter. And in our section here, chapter 4, verse 7, he begins, Dear friends, because John was the apostle of love and he's very loving in the way he writes. Let us love one another. For love comes from God. A love is a word that is used and misused a great deal. On Valentine's Day and on other occasions, we say love. But it's one of those buzzwords. It's one of those feel-good words. And love means ah instead of uh, which is a bit primitive. We want to be a little more precise about what we mean when we say love. Love is not uh, not having to say you're sorry. That's a very popular concept of love. Love is not an emotion. Love is a series of responsible choices that promotes in the other what God intends that other to be. And there are various emotions involved in that. But it is an intentional series of choices. Love is active. Love is not passive. Love goes out. Love doesn't suck in. Love doesn't consume. Love gives and blesses and enlarges and enables. 
Love is a series of responsible choices that promotes, encourages, sustains the reality of the other as God intends the other to be. Let us love one another. For love, and the word, the Greek word is agape. In English we have one word. The Greeks had several words. They had eros and philo and agape. And what I've described is agape. It's not appetite and it's not um, likeness. It's not I love chocolate. That's, that's not what we're talking about. Or I, <clears throat> I, I love steam baths. It's, it's not that. It's this deep, godly love that we're talking about. For love comes from God. It begins with God. Everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. Whoever does not love does not know God because, and here is the big phrase, God is love. We learn that in Sunday school if we grow up in a Christian environment. Most people have heard this phrase. It's a very famous phrase. It appears twice in the Bible, both times in this passage that we're looking at today. God is love. Uh, The word order is very important. It's not at all the same to say love is God. Because if we say love is God, it means we begin with our experience of love, however we define it, however we experience it. And then we project that and say that is God, which means actually I am God. I define God. I shape God by my experience of whatever I call love. Love is God. But if God is love, then I have to find out about God. What is God like? What is his character? What are his desires? What are his intentions? What does he do? How does he relate to his creation and among himself? And God defines love rather than love defining God. It's essential that we have that straight. Otherwise, we are humanistic and egoistic. We're not Christians. A Christian believes God is love. A non-Christian is likely to believe love is God. It's very important to get that straight. This is how God showed his love among us. He sent his one and only Son into the world that we might live through him. We don't rise up or climb up on a ladder to meet God. God comes to us worldwide in the incarnation of Jesus Christ and individually into each of our lives. We don't find God. He finds us and we receive him or we don't receive him. This is love, verse 10. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. So love is an atoning sacrifice. Now, atonement is one of those words, isn't it? 
It's like propitiation or these, these kinds of words that you know these words, you see these words, and you just skip over them because they're, you know, the religious words and everybody knows, oh, yeah, that's one of the Christian words. Well, they do actually have meanings that are, that are important. And atonement in English, it's easy to understand. It's easier in English than in any other language because if you break the word down into three parts, you have at one meant. And that is the meaning of atonement. Atonement is a sacrifice that brings together those who are separated. It restores the relationship of those who are alienated. So we are alienated from God and from all of reality by our sins. We are self-centered, dead, imploding people, alienated from God. And Jesus came to make a sacrifice that would reconnect us with God and make us new, connected, justified people. So an atoning sacrifice is a sacrifice that brings people together. If you, for instance, gossip about me, and I am damaged by this gossip, and you decide that that was a wrong thing to do and you're sorry, so you come to me and you say, I'm sorry I gossip about you. I will take it all back and I will clear everything up. Well, this is like opening up a feather pillow in the wind and then deciding you're going to go and gather all those feathers and put them back in the pillow. It's not going to happen. So you're not going to be able to pay me the debt that you owe me. You haven't got the money or the energy to do that. Then what is the possibility of reconciliation? The only possibility is that I will pay it. How can I pay it? Where do I get the money? I have to get the money from the bank of Jesus because Jesus paid it all. I draw on the bank of Jesus and I say, okay, we're alienated. You've sinned against me. You can't pay the debt. I will pay it. I will give it for you. I will give for. I will forgive. You see the connection in English. It works. It's lovely. I will forgive you. I will give it for you. Because you can't pay it. But I can pay it. This is atonement. And this is what love is. And this is what Jesus came to do. He was sent as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. Dear friends, since God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God, but if we love each other, God lives in us and his love is made complete in us. Now the Greek word is perfect, but complete is a very good translation. It means total. What is total is visible. It's not just an idea, it's concrete, it's real. So what he's saying is, no one has ever seen God, but if you love each other and people see you love each other, people see God, because God is love. 
So consider for a moment the power and responsibility that you have because you are able to let people see God in your relationships. This is a glorious and terrifying reality. But I present it to you as real. It's fact. This is the way life is. People see God. His love is made complete in us. Not in me. In us. See, Jesus didn't teach us to pray, My Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. He taught us to pray, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. So our relationship with God depends totally on our relationship with each other. And and John will have more to say about that. We know that we live in him and he in us because he has given us of his spirit, the wind, the truth, the spirit of Christ, the spirit of truth. And we have seen and testify that the Father has sent his Son to be the Savior of the world. If anyone acknowledges that Jesus is the Son of God, God lives in him and he in God. You see, that's the doctrinal test, the second melody. And so we know and rely on the love God has for us. And then he says it again. God is love. Whoever lives in love lives in God and God in him. You see how he repeats himself and the melodies swirl and intertwine so beautifully and unnecessarily. He said it Now he makes it beautiful. He makes a work of art out of it so that we can live in the flow of this gorgeous, musical, artistic construction. Love is made complete. You see this theme again, visible, total, perfected, reaching the goal among us so that we will have confidence on the day of judgment. Because in this world... We are like him. We are conformed. We are transformed by the renewing of our minds, as Paul wrote in Romans chapter 12. There is no fear in love, but perfect love drives out fear. And we think immediately fear of God, fear of judgment, but we also mean fear of each other. Perfect love drives out fear of each other because fear has to do with punishment and when we are confident and we experience increasing living in love and caring and serving and forgiving then the fear is driven out because fear has to do with punishment I'd like to look in a couple of other passages to see a a very sad and negative illustration of this and a gloriously positive and astonishing illustration of this. In the third chapter of Genesis, we are taught about the fall, the beginning of suffering and sin and alienation in the world. 
Adam and Eve had been made in God's image, and they related perfectly to each other. And there was trust. There was no fear. And then they ate the fruit of the knowledge of good and evil. You see, the serpent came to Eve, and he said, did God tell you not to eat? And she said, well, we can eat anything we want, but we just can't eat that one because we will die because this is the fruit of the knowledge of good and evil. And the devil, of course, was very clever. And he said something true and something false. He said, you will not die. That was a lie because they did die. You will become like God, knowing good and evil. That part was true. But they couldn't sustain that knowledge. Because God knows good and evil as a trinity in love, in relationships, as a community. But Eve would know good and evil as an individual, as a self-contained, egocentric person. And that would kill her. She would implode like a black hole in space that no light escapes from. And she, the devil is saying, you can be independent. You can be a liberated woman. And so she looked at this and she thought, well, it's true, I could, you know, and it looks like it might taste good and it might feel good and it's certainly self-aggrandizing and self-congratulating. I'm going to do it. So she did it and she died. And then she gave some to Adam and he ate it and he died. And the first symptom of their death was that they knew they were naked and they were afraid of each other. And this symptom has continued in the human race since then. We know on various levels that we are naked and vulnerable and we are afraid of each other. Okay, that's the negative. The positive is in the fourth chapter of the Gospel of John, where Jesus met the woman at the well in Samaria. And John says it was the sixth hour. That doesn't mean 6 a.m. It means the sixth hour of light, which is noon. And it's important that we know it was noon. Because in Samaria, women go to the well in the cool of the morning and the cool of the evening. And they meet and they help each other with the buckets and they talk and they get the news. They, they didn't have a newspaper. They had the well, which was just as good. They got all the news at, at the well. And this woman comes at noon in the heat of the day because she wants to be alone. Because everyone in the village hates her and is afraid of her because she has destroyed five families by adultery. And so they are quite right to hate her and to be afraid of her because she is a severe, destructive troublemaker. So she goes to be alone so the other women won't spit on her. And she meets Jesus. And Jesus says, I can give you water, and if you drink this water, you will never be thirsty again. And she says, give it to me. And we know that she drank it. Because what happens next? 
she ran into the village. And you know what people do in that part of the world at noon and afternoon. They eat and then they sleep because it's too hot to do anything else. So everyone is in their house, full of lunch, asleep. With the windows closed to keep the sunshine out and to make it cooler, and this is a normal activity. And she ran and she knocked on their doors and said, Wake up! Come and see a man who told me everything I ever did. You think you have the dirt on me. You should talk to him. He really knows. So she runs and she wakes them up to talk about her own sins. <laughs> Has fear been driven out of her life? I mean, think about it. I think about this woman and I think about my own life and I ask myself, am I saved? Do I know what love is? Have I received the love of God through Christ? Because I am not fearless like that woman. That's just shocking. The, this sudden flip from death to life, from fear and alienation into reaching out to bless. And it's just shocking that maybe some of you have experienced something like that in your life. I frankly have not. It would be a good thing, but I'm terrified of it. Love is not uh, sweet and friendly and easy. Love is life, and life is at war with death. And when we love, we are in the battle. And we see this woman was winning. And sometimes maybe we're winning. And sometimes maybe we're not winning. There is no fear in love, but perfect love drives out fear because fear has to do with punishment. We love because he first loved us. If anyone says, I love God, yet hates his brother, he is a liar. For anyone who does not love his brother, whom he has seen, cannot love God, whom he has not seen. And he, Jesus, has given us this command. Whoever loves God must also love his brother. And when they came to Jesus and asked him, what is the greatest commandment? He reached into Deuteronomy 6.15 and Leviticus 19.18 and summarized the law in these two principles. You must love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and you must love your neighbor as yourself. It's a very interesting passage he chose from Leviticus because he was preparing people for the gospel to go to the Gentiles and the non-Jewish world because Leviticus 19 is talking about the Israelite relationships with their pagan neighbors, with the foreigners. You must love your neighbor as yourself. And neighbor meant the foreigner. It didn't mean your fellow Pharisee or whoever might be your cozies. So Jesus gave this summary in short form. John is shrinking it even more. He's a real minimalist. 
And he says, whoever loves God must also love his brother. We live together in God's truth and love, or we don't live. Love is hard and frightening. We don't want it. But don't run from it. Allow Jesus to love you. There is an account about John in his old age, which may be apocryphal, and it may be fact. He lived to be over a hundred. You know, he was on the island of Patmos and he wrote the Revelation, but he was the bishop of Ephesus and he returned to Ephesus at some point. And he was greatly loved and respected. And they, he was so old and weak, they carried him into the church and put him down in the middle of the church so that he could preach to them. And he said, dear children, love one another. Amen. And they carried him out week after week. And the elders went to John and they said, oh, John, you knew the Lord. You were with him for three years. Don't you have something else to tell us? (laughs) And he said, oh, if you do this, it is enough. (laughs) Love one another. So I leave us with that thought. Love one another. God bless you. Amen.